I have no doubt that for weeks my printer was giving me warnings that it was running low on black ink. But only today when I tried to print out my sermon did I realize how dire the situation was. <laughs> and it prints mysteries of technology. It prints every other line clearly, sharply, distinctly, and then every other line obscurely. <laughs> I think we'll be fine. I know we'll be fine, but I may have to hold the page particularly close to my face, always, of course, endeavoring not to catch fire, <laughs> except metaphorically. <laughs> At first blush, Unitarian Universalism may not seem an especially burdensome religion. We are not obligated to pray five times daily, nor fast during Lent or Ramadan, nor abstain from pork or shellfish. We are not obligated to tithe to the church, though it is highly recommended. Still, we shoulder a heavy load. Our name, Unitarian Universalism. Trippingly off the tongue, it rolleth not. Unitarian Universalism, a name to confound the uninitiated, trick the novice, draw blank stares at cookouts, terminate conversation in bars, and bring to tears, bring to tears even our own precious children. Mary, what religion are you? I'm Catholic. And you, Billy? I'm Jewish. How about you, Jerome? I'm you. I forget. <laughs> Unitarian Universalism. When I first heard those words, I thought, now that's a name coined by a committee. <laughs> and so it was. Thereon hangs a tale, and a good one, and an important one. As some of you know, Unitarian Universalism originated in two liberal Protestant denominations, Unitarianism and Universalism. In the heady days after the Revolutionary War, both grew rapidly, albeit in different social circles. Unitarianism, which appealed primarily to the educated classes of coastal New England, doubted the divinity of Jesus as one of the Holy Trinity, asserting instead the unity of God. Jesus, they believed, was a wise teacher and moral exemplar. Instead of humbling ourselves before a wrathful God, they argued we should celebrate the miracle of humanity, especially its glorious faculty of reason. Meanwhile, universalism was taking root principally among the farmers and laborers of the New England interior, where horseback preachers pr spread the good news of universal salvation. A loving God, universalists insisted, would never condemn his, they had mostly yet to imagine her, own creatures to eternal damnation. 
They argued over the immediate fate of sinners, but they agreed that eventually all souls would be reunited in heaven. Thomas Starr King, in the mid-19th century, probably the first miniature, minister rather, to be fellowshipped as both Unitarian and Universalist, came perilously near the truth when he quipped, Universalists believe that God is too good to damn them. Unitarians believe that they are too good to be damned by God. <laughs> but as a practical matter, many Unitarians and Universalists believed much the same thing about the nature of the human and of the divine. Both religions played well to the optimistic young nation as it grew and prospered. By the turn of the 20th century, however, both religious movements had peaked in numbers and in influence. Universalism was largely a victim of its own success as Orthodox Protestantism abandoned its old obsession with a punitive hell of fire and brimstone. And Unitarianism's sunny faith in human nature, rocked by the Civil War, seemed increasingly naive and irrelevant in the glare and stench of trench warfare. Meanwhile, the triumphs of science and technology raised questions about the utility of any religion, particularly one as vague in its theology as Unitarianism. It was perhaps inevitable that two such oddballs at the prom of American religion would find each other and their romance flourish. But being proud, as well as idiosyncratic, our two lovebirds dillied and dallied for over a century before tying the knot. As early as the 1850s, Unitarian leader Henry Bellows mused about merger, observing that the primary impediment was not theological, but social. In 1878, the Unitarian Universalist congregations in Muckwanago, Wisconsin, sounds like a prairie home companion, became the first to consolidate their churches into one. In 1900, both national denominations adopted resolutions affirming that, quote, closer cooperation is desirable and practical. Flirtation had begun in earnest. Earnestness in Unitarians and Universalists, of course, does not necessarily imply speed. Two interreligious organizations, one founded in 1908, the other in 1933, both foundered. In 1937, music spanned the gap. When Unitarians and Universalists cooperated in publishing a new hymnal, their first denominational joint venture. In 1947, a joint committee was formed to explore union, but four years later, diffidence triumphed again with the establishment of yet another liaison, the Council of Liberal Churches. The CLC got as far as consolidating the two denominations, departments of education, publications, and public relations. Finally, as often happens in the courtship of blended families, the children took the lead. In 1951, American Unitarian Youth and the Universalist Youth Fellowship met in a single national conference. Three years later, impatient with the progress of their elders, they simply disbanded their respective groups and joined together as liberal religious youth. In 1956, 
whether inspired or shamed by the decisiveness of the kids, the Unitarian Universalist Association and the Universalist Church of America formed a joint merger commission to negotiate terms of union. This task demanded leadership at once pragmatic and idealistic, fair and forceful. The commission was fortunate to be headed by the Reverend William Rice, raised universalist but ordained Unitarian, minister of the Wellesley Unitarian Church. Somehow, Rice persuaded both denominations to appropriate the then daunting sum of $50,000 for professional consultants to guide the process, an investment that would be returned many times over. Determined to engage the congregations in a broad-ranging dialogue, the commission flooded them with documents illuminating all aspects of the decision they faced. These included an 85-page plan for merger, an 11-page list of pros and cons, an 83-page summary of interviews with advocates and critics, and a 46-page study guide. Whatever, one, whatever anyone may have thought about merger, no one could complain of being left in the dark. The commission prepared a 44-page plan to consolidate, known as the Blue Book. The plan was to be voted on by the two denominations, meeting separately but simultaneously in Syracuse, New York in 1959. If approved, the plan would then be submitted to the congregations in a binding plebiscite. Now, the commission had wrangled for months over what to call this religious combination. They ruminated over suggestions for an entirely new name, such as the United Liberal Church of America, favored by AUA President Frederick May Elliott. They debated for hours whether Unitarian or Universalist should come first, and whether a hyphen should separate them. In the end, they settled on the Unitarian Universalist Association, 16 syllables, no hyphen. It turned out that was the easy part. In Syracuse, a record 1,000 delegates, 600 Unitarian, 400 Universalist, assembled to contemplate and critique the plan. Reverend Robert West, who would later serve as UUA president, described the Unitarian sessions as unbridled democracy in action, a Unitarian Council of Nicaea, a parliamentary alley fight, and a heated family squabble. 57 amendments were offered. <laughs> to the Blue Book plan, each to be moved, seconded, debated, and voted on. Each denomination was meeting separately, but the final product had to be identical, down to the last comma. So a change made by one group had to be approved by the other. It's a miracle the delegates are not still in Syracuse today. <laughs> the issue that most deeply divided them and that nearly derailed merger was the precise wording of the UUA's statement of principles. Glaring from opposite corners were Christian delegates who insisted upon some reference to Jesus Christ and humanists who rejected any reference to the divine, to the divine whatsoever. The commission's draft hoped to calm the extremes and capture the center by declaring the UUA's purpose, quote, to cherish and spread the universal truths taught by the great prophets and teachers of humanity in every age and tradition, immemorially summarized in their essence as love to God and love to man. Remember, this was 1959. 
The Universalists, notwithstanding their stronger Christian heritage, modeled the spirit of benign tolerance at the core of their faith by voting four to one to approve this version. The Unitarians were harder to please. No sooner had this language hit the floor than a coalition of humanists and others fearful of any creed succeeded in deleting it entirely. This was too much for Donald Harrington, minister of the interfaith and racially diverse Community Church of New York, president of the World Federalists, and chair of the New York State Liberal Party. Supported by more than 20 other ministers, he rose to restore the original language with the critical addition of the words, in our Judeo-Christian heritage. Harrington's motion to reconsider failed by just seven votes. By now it was 1.30 in the morning, and merger itself hung in the balance. Exhausted and discouraged, Harrington left the hall and went to bed. At three o'clock in the morning, he was awakened by a leading Unitarian Christian with astonishing news. He had persuaded the Universalists to reconsider their vote, which meant the Unitarians could now do the same. Meanwhile, someone had proposed the brilliant compromise of replacing our Judeo-Christian heritage with the Judeo-Christian heritage. This substitution mollified those who honored these traditions but declined to claim them, while others protested that it anathemized Jesus. But in the end, the change of a single three-letter word won the approval of both denominations and saved their union. The language desperately hammered out in the wee hours would stand unamended for a quarter century, and you can find the current principles and purposes in your gray hymnal just before hymn number one. Despite this 11th hour breakthrough, Note to self, never give people a page reference of the book within their reach while you're preaching a sermon. <laughs> Despite this 11th hour breakthrough, as the delegates departed Syracuse for their home churches, many believed that merger was doomed. The commission had proposed that adoption of the plan would require the approval of 75% of voting congregations. But opponents had imposed the further requirement that at least 75% of all congregations participate in the vote. They figured this was impossible. Participation in the annual parish poll averaged only 20%. But they didn't count on Raymond Hopkins, chair of the plebiscite committee. With the tenacity of a Chicago ward captain, Hopkins lined up 200 ministers from both denominations, each committed to make sure that five congregations voted, not necessarily in favor, but voted. There we go, 20 area chairs across the continent reported their progress. Thus prodded, an astonishing 90% of Unitarian and Universalist congregations participated in the plebiscite. Eight out of nine Universalist congregations voting approved the consolidation and nine out of 10 Unitarian. Although the structure of the Unitarian Universalist Association would not be decided until 1961, the emotional and spiritual climax of consolidation came in Boston in 1960, where the plebiscite was ratified and the UUA formally established. Hundreds of ministers in robes processed into worship, singing Marian Franklin Ham's hymn, with which we will soon close. As tranquil streams that meet and merge, and flow as one to seek the sea. 
our kindred fellowships unite to build a church that shall be free. Over and over again they sang it, tears welling up in their eyes. Appropriately, Donald Harrington preached the sermon. He called consolidation partly a new birth, partly a commencement, partly a kind of marriage, but also a degree of death, an end of things that have been precious to us. And he spoke of Unitarian Universalism's tremendous potential, born of this new world's need for a religion which is dynamic instead of static, unitive instead of divisive, universalistic instead of particularistic, history-making rather than history-bound. In the 55 years since, the Unitarian Universalist Association has made history. Women are now a majority of our parish ministers. Our denomination has led the way in affirming the rights and celebrating the contributions of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer people. We are the first predominantly white mainline denomination to elect an African-American president. And our president now, Peter Morales, is Latino. In a world in which interfaith dialogue is no longer a luxury but a necessity, Unitarian Universalists engage in this dialogue all the time. But if we have not been wandering in the wilderness for the last half century, neither have we reached the promised land. Most of our congregations have yet fully to reflect the rich diversity of our communities, to confront courageously the challenges of racism and classism and other oppressions, to make our churches fully accessible to people of all abilities, to nurture and to respect the leadership of our youth. And so we strive to realize these and other dreams while caring for one another, honoring our differences as strengths, and walking humbly in the presence of mystery. We stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before, for ours is the religion they made, Unitarian Universalism. Amen, Ashe, and blessed be.